Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So, trust me when I say this, I love being part of Loma Linda University Church. There was like one amen back there. So I'm glad to know that somebody back there feels the same way I do. And I'm going to tell you why I'm so happy to be part of this church. I'm happy to be part of this church because this is a supremely generous church. Not just with your resources, but with your words. Last week, I got phone calls, text messages. People stopped me in the grocery store. There was one of you who flagged me down on Barton Road and almost caused a collision. (laughs) And you know who you are. And every time I was stopped, it was because you all had the most generous words. You all said, hey, you were such a blessing this week. And I don't know how to react to that, so I kind of sheepishly smirk and I say thank you. And then one of you said, "Um, I think you do better when you don't prepare. (laughs) I don't know what to do with that. So I said, thank you. And then I started getting anxious because what do I do now? Do I wing it? Do I study? How do I handle it? And so I went down this path through a wormhole of situations and moments and stories particularly about people who have had a moment of doubt and just this moment of regret. And as I was reading, I ran into the story of Ross Gelbspan. Now, Ross is a journalist. He's been covering issues on the environment for the past 40 years. And back in 1972, he went to a conference entitled The Limits of Growth. Now, the conference was named after a book, the most popular and bestseller, Uh, when it comes to issues on the environment. So Ross gets into the hall where they're meeting, and he sits, and he starts consuming these seminars, and the seminars are rather dreary. They're kind of drab. It's all about how economic exploitation and population explosion are going to cascade into the end of human civilization as we know it. And so Ross is sitting there, 
And one of the proponents, one of the keynote speakers, is actually the co-author of the book. Her name is Donnell Meadows. And as Donnell is speaking about environmental models that ensure that by the year 2050, living on the coast will no longer be feasible. And as she is talking about these really grim predictions, Ross is captured by a paradox. Because as Ross is hearing Donna present, he is struck by the fact that she's pregnant. And so here is this uncomfortable juxtaposition. On the one hand, it's about how hopeless the future is. On the other, you have this indomitable desire that lives deep inside every one of us to hope. And so Ross decides to chuck his drafts and begins to write a new story. A new story that is going to focus on hope, that is going to talk about information and how we can live hope-filled lives in the middle of the most uncomfortable truths. The Village Voice, the magazine for which Ross was writing for, loved the article so much, found it so moving that they decided to put it as their cover story. There was only one problem, one bit of fake news, if you will, and that was that Donna wasn't pregnant. Now, this happened 40 years ago, and when remembering it, Ross still recoils. He cannot believe how he, an experienced journalist, that checks and cross-checks everything could have missed such a basic detail, how he could have confused a, a woman's pregnancy with simply being bloated. <laughs> I know what I took from the story. I vowed never to ask someone if they're pregnant. But there's something about mistakes, right? Something about mistakes that is so frightening that it forces us to come up with some rather interesting language. I mean, sometimes you make a mistake so big that you would rather die. That's why we use the word, I'm so mortified. And perhaps you're thinking that's too dramatic, that's too drastic. But you know what? Sometimes our mistakes force us to want to disappear. I mean, how often have you used the phrase, oh, I wish a hole would just open up in the ground and swallow me? Or, oh, I wish I could crawl into a cave. I even heard a student make a mistake and say, oh, I wish I could just disappear. This idea that our identity is deeply linked to our capacity for mistakes or rather our apprehension towards them. But that's not the only response we have to making mistakes. 
Some of us have responses that are a bit less drastic and more gastric. I mean, how often have we heard phrases like, oh, you forced me to eat crow, or I could eat my shoe, or I wish I could eat my words. Now, the one thing that I find just emerges is that mistakes made are deeply unpleasant and very hard to digest. So here we are in the second part of our series entitled Sanctified. Pitching our tents on the plains of Mount Sinai, experiencing the presence of God, petrified to make a mistake, nervous about what the, what the future will bring. Now, something very interesting happens as we begin our reading for today found in the book of Exodus, the 30th chapter. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to focus primarily on verses 11 through 16. That's where we're going to be living. Now, something interesting happens. Because as we open our story, the text begins by simply saying, Then the Lord said to Moses... Now, this is going to be our foundational phrase for this whole series. Seven speeches that God gives to Moses that all begin with the phrase, the Lord said. And this is the instruction that God gives to Moses. He says, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom. Now, you're probably wondering at this moment, what is so wrong with taking a census. You know, what is this sin that Israel has committed that demands a ransom? Well, if you think about it, any kingdom desperately needs a, ran a census in order to know how to better govern. I mean, if you're trying to collect taxes, you want to know what the census says to know how many people are going to pay. If you want to raise up an army, you want to know how many people you have so that you can conscript them into service. I mean, it might be apropos to say that a census is a basic component of governing well. I'm really happy, though, that we no longer have this problem, right? That we are no longer in the church prisoners to numbers. That we no longer pop into any meeting that we have and begin to count heads in order to see how well we're doing. I am so happy that Adventism is past this idea or this narrative that says that numbers signify success. Which is why I don't understand why we begin each church administrative meeting by stating how well we're doing based on numbers. God is desperately telling Moses that the kingdoms of the world signify their success based on numbers, but you need to base your certainty, your assurance, your trust on something deeper. So I have three questions that we want to navigate as a corporate body today. Question number one, 
What do we do when we face a mistake? Question number two, how do we do when we face a mistake? Question number three, where do we face our mistakes? But I want you to consider just another word in the first verse of our scripture reading today. It says, when you take a census of the Israelites to camp them, each one may pay, must pay the Lord a, my Bible says, ransom. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary has an interesting tidbit to say about this idea of ransom. I read from the commentary, a ransom likely a covering in the same sense that an insurance covers a man and releases him from further obligation. So this idea of ransom in the book of Exodus is this notion that you are covered. That when you make a mistake, you are covered. I want to ask you a question. Why do we get insurance? Like, why do we pay our monthly premiums and our deductibles? We do so because should we make a mistake, should we get in a car accident, or should our house burn down, we want to make sure that we are covered. Allstate, one of the most influential insurance companies in our country, ran a really successful marketing campaign based on the slogan, you're in good hands. And we believe them. And I know we believe them because, like I said, month after month, we go when we pay our premium. So my question for you, actually, is why do we trust Allstate more than we trust Jesus? What is it about this idea of coming to God with our mistakes Coming to God with our confession and trusting that God's going to say, don't worry about it. You are in good hands. So what do we do when we make a mistake? Well, it's simple. We confess. After all, Scripture says, confess your sins one to another and... If you confess your transgressions, he is faithful to forgive them. This idea of, com of confession is woven through the pages of Scripture. And yet still, we recoil a bit when we think about this act of confession. And I think we recoil because we haven't understood what sin is. See, most of us think that sin has to do with my behavior. Now, if that's true, then we can pack up and leave and go have a good lunch today. Because I'm going to give you the solution. If sin is based on your behavior, then the solution to the problem of sin is really simple. Stop. If sin has to do with your behavior, then just stop. But the problem is that sin is more than that. See, sin doesn't just alienate you from God. Sin distances you from one another. 
It breaks down the bonds in the body of Christ because sin needs you to be isolated. Confession isn't just about making things right with God. Confession is about restoring us to each other. Look at the words in Exodus. It's a corporate thing. It's right there. How do you confront your mistakes? You come together, each one of you, with a shekel. And the Hebrew word for shekel is weight. Now, how many of you have a weight? A weight that oppresses your heart. And you drag that weight. And you try to forget that you're carrying it. And you get really good at pretending. I mean, we get great at pretending. We leave our weight in the car as we walk and put on our Christian faces and sit in these pews. But there's no joy. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, anesthetist, and a theologian, when thinking about these weights we carry and the need for confession, writes a book, a little tiny thin book, entitled Life Together. I want you to consider just how Bonhoeffer views confession. Bonhoeffer says, if a Christian is in the fellowship of confession with a brother, he will never be alone anywhere. If a Christian is in the fellowship of confession with a brother, he will never be alone anywhere. So what do we do? We confess. How do we do that? Corporately. And I know that's nerve-wracking. I know that there's a little bit of tinge of fear that just coils down your spine when you think about confession. Because after all, often we take our confessions and we weaponize them. My wife still reminds me, 20 years later, that I was late to my wedding. <laughs> I got lost. I'm not very good with directions. We take our confessions, church, and we weaponize them. It's human nature, isn't it? And so we don't trust each other. We don't trust each other enough to say, I'm broken. And the terrible and tragic part is that we don't trust God enough to say, that's okay, you're in good hands. So don't take my word for it. Take the founder of our church's word for it. Listen to Ellen White. This is Patriarchs and Prophets. I know I'm using Ellen White. Listen to what she writes. The law of God enshrined within the ark was the great rule of righteousness and judgment. The law pronounced death upon the transgression. I love this part. But above the law was the mercy seat. 
upon which the presence of God was revealed and from which, by virtue of the atonement, pardon was granted to the repentant sinner. Thus, in the work of Christ for our redemption, symbolized by the sanctuary service, mercy and trust are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. See, sin isn't what you do. Sin is who you are. It's a virus. It's a virus that is impacted and incubated in every cell in your body, every atom in your body. And so we know well that The only way to fix an internal problem is to have an internal transformation. We don't trust God because we think that the Spirit is about condemnation. Let me tell you the good news today, church. The Spirit is not about condemnation. It's about conviction. And any healthy doctrine of the sanctuary needs to begin by understanding that the sanctuary is not about condemnation, it's about conviction. That's why the mercy seat was there. Church, we need to repeat this. This needs to become the mantra of the Adventist church. This needs to become a sermon that we preach from every Adventist pulpit, that God's response to our mistakes is grace and grace evermore. Do you believe that? Well, then I'm, I'm going to ask you to step out on a ledge with me this morning. Are you willing to step out on a ledge with me? Okay, there's a couple heads shaking. Thank you. Thank you to you brave souls. I'm not going to have you step on an actual ledge. It's a matter of speech, church. All right, so I need you to do something. It's going to be hard. It's going to be kind of scary. It's going to be a bit awkward. Are you ready? I need you to turn to the person next to you. I need, to, I need you to look into their eyes. If you're in a pew with three people or if you came with three people, y'all got to figure out how it's going to work in your own group. But look into the person's eyes next to you. I still see a bunch of you looking up here. You don't need to be looking up here. You need to be looking at the person next to you. I need you to gaze into their eyes. I love this exercise because I can tell who's married and who's, who's been married for a while and who's dating. Those of you who are dating, y'all have been seeing each other the whole service. So lock eyes with one another. Peer into each other's soul. Are you there? Do you have a soul connection? All right. Then I need you to repeat these words with me. I need you to say this to the person next to you. You are not perfect. Some of you married couples are enjoying this way too much. You are not perfect. Here's the second part, though, and that's okay. All right, y'all, I need you back over here. It was the one phrase. Y'all are having complete conversations now. Back here. You are not perfect, and that's okay. See, confession is corporate, which leads us to our third question. What do we do when we make a mistake? We confess. How do we do that? We do that corporately. Where do we do that? We do that under 
the cross. The reason why we haven't learned how to be good at the discipline of confession is because we haven't understood the gospel. So let, let me give you a summary and tell me if this is familiar. Human beings are really bad. They're really broken, and God was really angry, and so he needed someone big enough to take the rap. So Jesus says, I guess I'll go up there. Does that sound familiar? If that sounds like something you have heard from a pulpit, or if that sounds like something that wants to creep into your heart when you're thinking about the gospel, I am sorry to tell you that that is a heresy. To believe that God was angry is a heresy because God didn't get up on that cross because he was angry, church. God, uh, God, God got up on that cross because he was in love. It's God's love and his desire, that relentless desire to forgive you that made him go on Golgotha. The Spirit is about conviction, and confession is about transformation. See, we get nervous. We pause and we get nervous because we sometimes think, ooh, what if what, if what I say is used against me? Or worse yet, what if I open up and then the person next to me opens up? And then what if this becomes this therapeutic session? I mean, I like to cry like any other guy. But that's not the point of confession. See, confession isn't just emotional unburdening. Confession is about transformation. Again, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, thinking about this issue, says that only the Christian that has experienced the cross can hear his brother or his sister's confession. We need to be a church that lives under the cross. Because without the cross, there is no confession. That's what the sanctuary doctrine is trying to tell you. And you can follow Israel. You can follow Israel from exodus to exile. Still carrying those shekels, trying to relieve themselves of, the, of that weight. And you can follow them all the way to the Gospels. You can thumb through the pages of your Bible and you can land on Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus has just talked about the cross. And his disciples don't understand it. You know, his disciples are still afraid. His disciples have understood the what. They have understood the how. They just haven't quite grasped the where. And so they're nervous. And Jesus is talking about confession. He's talking about that mercy seat. And then Peter, good old Peter, is greeted in Capernaum by some tax collectors. And these tax collectors are trying in Matthew 17, 24 to collect the same tax that Exodus 30 talks about, the temple tax. And they ask him, does your master not pay the temple tax? And Peter, without thinking much, says, of course he does. You know, after all, the temple tax was a great issue of pride 
an identity for the Jews. Sure, they had some debates, rather trivial ones. The Pharisees believed that everyone needed to pay the temple tax. The Sadducees believed that only those who wanted could pay the temple tax. The Essenes believed that you could pay the temple tax but once a year. Really trivial conversations, much like the conversations we have in churches today. Trivial. Because we haven't placed ourselves under the cross. Because we haven't understood what the cross is. Because we haven't understood that the cross is where God's mercy and grace meet our confession. So Peter goes to Jesus and says, hey. And Jesus, reading his mind, knowing what is in his heart, says, uh, Peter, do kings collect taxes from their children? In other words, does the Christian that has lived and understood the power of confession and the power of the cross, does he still live life oppressed by this unbearable weight? And Peter blurts out, no. And then Jesus says, I love this for us Adventists. Jesus says, go and fish. And Peter goes and fishes. And he gets a catfish. And he touches the catfish. By the way, by touching the catfish, Peter is now unclean. And he opens his mouth and he fishes out a coin. And he goes and he pays the temple tax. And what Jesus is trying to say is, once you recognize the power of confession in the cross... All this weight that you have is lifted. And it's lifted to understand the greatest truth of them all. And that is that God has made provision. That the sanctuary was about provision. That mercy seat sprinkled by the blood of the lamb was about providing for your sins. You know, I'm heartbroken sometimes, church. I'm heartbroken because when you look at the reality of our churches and the scandals that afflict Christianity, those scandals occur because people believe in two lies. Every single church scandal, every single time we as a community fail, the root can be found on these two falsities. Number one, my sin isn't big enough, and so I'm going to justify it. Number two, my sin is too big. And if I confess it, I'm going to destroy the church, and so I'm going to bury it. Just like we haven't understood what sin is, just like we haven't understood what the gospel is, I firmly believe we still haven't understood what the church is. So because this week I had quite a bit of more time to prepare, I have prepared two conclusions. And how we conclude this message is going to depend on how you answer this question. So, we need to answer it simply by raising our hands, okay? You're with me? How many of you here believe that the church is a fraternity of saints? Don't raise your hand yet. Listen to all the options. Okay, can... 
How many of you believe the church is a fellowship of sinners? Those are your two options. Okay, so those of us who believe it's a fraternity of saints, those of you who believe it's a fellowship of sinners, the pastoral staff's going to be busy this week. <laughs> See, when we believe that the church is a fellowship of sinners, then we understand that there is no sin that we can confess to each other and no sin that we can confess to God that is going to cause us to run for the hills. And there's power in that. I guess I'm going to go with conclusion number two. It was a year not unlike this one, a time not unlike this, a context not unlike the one we have around, which forces me to make a disclaimer, this didn't happen at Loma Linda University Medical Center. But this was a hospital, a hospital that was attached to a collegiate campus, a hospital that was on the cutting edge of medical care. It performed about 170 surgeries every week, and it saw about 250,000 patients a year. Hannah walked into that hospital feeling rather confident after all. Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts was one of the teaching hospitals for Harvard Medical School. It was a rather normal day as Hannah went and checked in. This was a non-invasive surgery after all. It was a rather routine procedure. And so as she was filling in her paperwork, she chatted with her friends and with her family. She was wheeled into the OR, and uh, when she woke up, kind of in this brain fog, this haziness that comes as you are coming out of your anesthesia, she noticed something. The wrong side of her body was bandaged. So for you that are in the medical field that are too hard on yourselves, there's doctors out there that actually perform surgeries on the wrong side of the body. As Hannah's trying to figure out what happened, she notices, rather horrified, that this is going to be a problem. And so the, the physician walks in. Now, Nancy Belling, Berlinger, who's a ethicist and a writer, she actually wrote a book on medical malpractice in the U.S. entitled After Harm, captures how these conversations usually go. Listen to Nancy's words. She says, Observing more senior physicians, students learn that their mentors and supervisors believe in, practice, and reward the concealment of errors. The talk about unanticipated outcomes until a mistake morphs into a complication. Basically, Berlinger is saying that there is a culture of secrecy that pervades the medical field. Not in Loma Linda, because this is a Jesus hospital, but everywhere else. <laughs> now, some mistakes make you feel mortified. Other mistakes make you feel like you could crawl into a cave. Still, other mistakes make you want to eat your shoe. But there are some mistakes that harm people in a really profound way. 
It's estimated that around 750,000 patients suffer from medical malpractice in a year in America. Out of those 750,000, almost 100,000 patients perish, which makes medical error the eighth leading cause of death in America. So that morning, as Nancy is coming out of her brain fog, she thinks to herself, here it comes, talks about unanticipated outcomes or complications. Instead, the doctor looked at her and said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And she was able to do that because Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center had implemented a disclose and apologize policy. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, mm, the lawsuit must have been hefty. In 1987, a medical center veterans hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, also decided to implement a disclose and apologize policy. And they've been practicing that policy from 1987. In all those years, do you know how many times they've been taken to court? Three. What I find even more shocking is that the amount and the figure for settlements on malpractice in this particular hospital is a mere $16,000 per patient. Now compare that to what the figure is on the average around 98,000. And that leads me to believe that there is power in confession. Beth Israel Medical Center decided that being open and honest was the best, best policy, not only for their hospital, but for their patients. And if a hospital connected to Harvard University can make that decision, I wonder if a church connected to Loma Linda Medical Center can realize that openness and confession are the best practices for our body. And I know it's scary. Yeah, I'm afraid at considering the prospect of confession. You know, after all, there is always a possibility that when you hear what I have to say, you're going to lose confidence in me as a pastor. Or worse yet, that, would, that you might use what I say against me at some point. You know, I don't know much. I can't tell you I figured out what lies at the end of the road. Most days I can barely see what's in front of me. Here's the beauty of the gospel church. The gospel gives us just enough light to know what the next right step is. And what is the next right step? Confession. So today, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing with me. I'm going to ask you to confess. It's okay. We don't need to get particular. We don't need to get specific. We're going to pray a prayer of confession. And the way it's going to work is I am going to read 
And you, lovely congregation, will follow. You all are smart enough, but in case you aren't, we put congregation where you're supposed to read. Okay? So here we go. Let's confess. Have mercy on us, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgression, wash away all our iniquity, and cleanse us from our sin. Cleanse us with hyssop, and we will be clean. Wash us, and we will be whiter than snow. Y'all get an A. Isn't it about time we start trusting God? Isn't it about time we start trusting that the God who wants to pitch a tent in our midst, the God that wants to live inside us, is going to meet every single confession we have with grace? It's always about conviction. Let's stop fearing condemnation. Meditate on what you have to say to that God as we hear the notes of the postlude. Let us pray. Here we are, Lord. We've asked you to examine us. We've asked you to search us. We know that we will be weighed on that balance. And that by ourselves, we're always going to be found wanting. But we also know that in Jesus Christ, we are in good hands. That Christ Jesus has lifted up our weights, so we confess. We do so corporately. We do so at the foot of the cross. In your name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.